If you knew how much she did not like doing that, you would appreciate her. My wife would rather have another baby than be on this stage. And so, uh, but just to honor her, what a great opportunity it was uh, for you guys to get to meet her. Uh, not something that she wants to do all the time, but uh, she has meant so much to this church kind of behind the scenes, whether it's just what she does in our home uh, and raising me and our children, and, uh, but also the prayers that she prays for this place. But happy, happy Mother's Day. So glad to be with you and to see you and to be able to uh, just teach a little bit from God's word. Man, moms, we know that you have a difficult job, right? And we know that we're in this series that called resilience. Let's all say resilience together. Resilient. And we know that to be a mom, you got to have some resiliency, don't you? Man, you got it. You have to be resilient. Moms, we need you because you know some things that we don't know. You know some things that we don't know. So for instance, you know that the fastest land animal is a toddler with something in her mouth. Man, you know that silence is golden unless you have children and then silence is suspicious. Listen, you know, man, man you know that, that if you have teenagers, you need a dog because somebody needs to be glad when you, to see you when you come home. That's right. Man, and we know that it's just, man, it is not easy to be a mom because if it were, then us dads would do the job, right dads? It, it's, it's difficult. It takes some resilience and we need you. There's some things that you know. There's some things that you know, and we need you. Listen, we need, we need you to have the fortitude to fan in the flame, the gift of faith that God has put into your kids' hearts. And we need you to have the backbone to believe that the blessing of God is best. Amen goes right there, right? To, that the blessing of God is what is best. And we know that it can be difficult. So, so, so today we're going to look at uh, part of our series on resilient. Let me catch you up to where we've been. We've been in this book, the uh, study of a book called Peter, written by one of Jesus' early, early followers, whose name was Peter. And Peter is writing a letter to Christians who are in, they're having some persecution, they're having some difficulty, they're spread all over the Roman Empire. And there's a lot of connections between the Roman Empire and actually the culture that we're living in today. When you look at animosity towards Christians and when you see some of uh, the level of hostility that's happening and when you just see some of the cultural things that are that, that's going on just whether it's politically or uh, in entertainment we, we just see a lot of similarities that happen and Peter is writing to them he's trying to encourage them he's trying to build them up he's trying to help them to live out their faith and to live resilient lives he wants them to be able to stand firm in times of trouble he wants them to be able to navigate suffering and we want to talk about that today because we all go through difficult times don't we Anybody go through a difficult time this week? Anybody want to admit it, right? I mean, we go through difficult times. There's times, but we can go through difficult times differently than, than ordinary people. I mean, we can go through difficult times with hope and we can experience God's blessing even in difficult times. And so Peter is going to help us unpack that today. Now, now when Peter, uh, in the text that Debbie just read, um, when Peter starts off, he just starts off talking about and trying to tap into um, this desire that we all have for the good life. If you notice in verse eight, it says this, finally. Now, it's kind of ironic that, that Peter's a preacher and he uses the word finally and then he preaches for two more chapters. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
for whoever desires to love life and see good days. And when Peter says whoever desires to love life and see good days, good days, he's talking to everybody, isn't he? Listen, the one thing that we all have in common, man, one, among other things, but one of the things that we all have in common because God has created us this way is that we want the good life. Come on. Like we want to experience the goodness that life has to offer. It says it this way in the Bible. It says that God has placed eternity in your heart. God has placed eternity in your heart. And what that means is those times when you get this, you get this sense that there's more, when you realize this world is not your home, when you just kind of intuitively know this life is not all there is to my life, this is that whisper, that prompting of God in your heart to remind you that there's something out there for you, the good life. Listen, the reason you live in North uh, Georgia is because you want the good life. Amen, somebody? Like, think about all the things that we have that are so good, right? So good. I mean, taste of Alpharetta this past week. You can go to eat any, any restaurant you want to go to, to eat any ethnic food that you want. I mean, you can get Australian Outback, right? I mean, um, you have everything that you want. Um, and, and here's the thing that we have that's a little interesting to me, and I feel like it connects a little bit with the Roman world. Now, what, if you remember anything about Rome and any Roman history, um, Rome was this massive empire, but it deteriorated. It fell. We've heard about the fall of Rome. And part of what happened is as Rome began to capture more territory, they began to have people that would take jobs of Roman citizens. And so Roman citizens had nothing to do. They lost their desire and their drive to move forward. So they had to placate the mob by building coliseums. And they built coliseums and they put on different types of entertainment in the coliseums that eventually denigrated into massacring Christians. Now, now I just look and think about the, the level of coliseums we have in our area. Can you, can you think about the favorite ones you go to? Think about these. You have Mercedes-Benz. You have State Farm Arena. Um, you have, is it Ameris Bank now? I think they change the name here in Alpharetta every three days. Um, you have Lakewood Amphitheater. You have Chastain Park. You have the Gwinnett Center. You have the Cobb Energy Center. We have so many options for entertainment. And it's not necessary. I'm not saying that that is bad, but here's what can happen is we can become so distracted by entertainment. We can, can become so captured by the temporary that we lose eternity. Come on. Like we can be so captured by the options that we have to keep our minds occupied that we lose sight of eternity. I wrote it like this in my journal this week. It's, it is not bad to live here. It's just bad to live like this is going to last. It's not bad to live here. It's great. Don't you wish you were the one that invented the three words? Life is good. I mean, that $133 million a year. Listen, we all want that. We want to have a good day, a good evening, good riddance sometimes. Like, good for you. We want to have good, and that's not wrong. We just have to really define and understand that good is the blessing of God. Good is the blessing of God. And Peter is just trying to help us to remember what that looks like. And Peter is just painting a life of, 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 that God is actually looking at. He, he walks through these different uh, behaviors. He says, have unity of mind. In other words, remain focused on your purpose. Remember what your mission is. Be, be single-minded. Sympathy. In other words, like I want to understand you so I can help you, right? Because I'm right and you're wrong. Now, uh, I want to understand you so that I can help you. Brotherly love. I want to love. We need to love people like they're in our family. A tender heart as opposed to a hard heart. A hard heart shuts people off. A tender heart is open. You know, one of the sayings that moms would say is you've got to have a thick skin and a tender heart. He says, have a tender heart. He says, have a humble mind, which is just saying, 
I, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Hey, dads, turn to, the, turn to your wife right now and say, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Uh, some of you, that, you really struggle. I could see you. We'll have, I, you can, get, you can get, get on my calendar next week. Um, I may be wrong. And then he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for this you were called. And it reminds me, you know, what, what Peter is saying is you need to be the one that's active. You need to be the one that takes the first step. You need to be the one. You need not to react to what's happening around you, but you need to have a firm conviction about your calling in life so that you can live that out. My mom would say it like this, and maybe, well, moms would say it like this. My mom would say it a little bit different. If your friend jumped off a cliff, would you? You remember your mom saying that? Now, I lived on the Mississippi River, so my mom would say, if your friend jumped off the Mississippi River Bridge, would you? You know, that's what my mom would say to me, um, because, but I, she didn't have to say it often because I never followed the crowd. Um, but Peter's just trying to paint this picture of what this looks like um, and that we can have this what's called a blessed life and to obtain the blessing of the Lord uh, and in our, the blessing of the Lord in our lives. You're, you may have heard this analogy. You can either be a thermostat or the thermometer. A therm- if you're a thermostat, that just means you set the temperature in the room. Um, you're a Google Nest, right? You, you set the temperature in the room. A, therm- a thermometer just means we measure the temperature in the room. Now, the reality is everybody in the room is actually a thermostat to rooms that you walk into. Every time you walk into a room, you're either raising the temperature or you're lowering the temperature. You're either making the room better or worse. When you, when you walk into a room, either people are looking forward to you coming or they're looking forward to them leaving. Like, what do you do? What do you do? What, what, what do you do to the temperature in the room? And I think what we see is just the power of words is what Peter's talking about. And I just want you to imagine this morning, just think back to this morning in just the few hours that you've been awake. Let's see, it's almost noon, so an hour. Um, and the words that you've used and the things that you've said and the tone that came out and the inflection and the way that you used them and the purpose with which you said them, what did your words do today? Did they raise the level of the room or lower it? Would people, based on what you've said just today, want to invite you back into their lives or avoid you for the rest of the day? And so this is what Peter is saying to us to help us to be able to be people that actually set the tone and that gets God's eyes on us. Now, Peter, what he does at this point is he jumps into quoting some scripture from the Old Testament, one of the Psalms. Now, the Psalm is known as the ancient hymn book of the Old Testament. Does anybody remember what a hymn book is? Raise your hand, right? All right, do you guys know what a hymn book is? Okay, you still know. Okay, gotcha, that's pretty awesome. Um, but a hymn book, we used to sing out of hymnals, right? That was, and now we sing off of the screen. Um, and pretty soon, we're gonna have a chip in our head that we just sing what the chip says. Uh, <laughs> and so he turns to Psalm 34, Psalm 34 in the ancient hymn book of Israel, and he pulls out a couple of verses. Now, what's crazy about this and what is so good is that the title of this psalm, it's written by David, King David, and it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, let's experience that God is good. Let's don't just talk about him. Let's just don't think about it. Man, let's experience him. And then Peter begins to quote some verses from this particular psalm, and he says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil words his lip from speaking deceit, the power of words, let him turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And this is what's beautiful about this because the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is open to their prayer. 
but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, now there's a lot of different people in the room on a Mother's Day. And we all have a different belief of who God is and what he does and what he should have done and what he can't do and what he won't do and what he will do. We, we just have a lot because we just, because, and we also just attract a lot of different people from different faith journeys or no faith journeys. But no matter where you are in the journey, no matter what you think about God, if there is a God and if God can and does answer prayer, man, don't you want his ears to be open to your prayer? Don't you want to know that he looks with, at you and is like, gotcha, Right? Gotcha. Not a magic formula, but a God who cares. When, when I see this, these words about eyes on you, it always reminds me of when my kids were younger. And some of you guys get this, right? And you, you remember this, this symbol here, right? I was out in the hallway just a second ago, and uh, someone had all this stuff in their hand, and uh, I reached and was going to just give them a, a side hug. And she says, I don't have any arms to hug. I said, oh, you, you, got, you got a lot more than that. You got the look, right? Because moms have the look. Gotcha. When we would go to high school football games when my kids were smaller. And, you know, man, kids at high school games, they don't really want to watch the game. They're just running around playing. They're playing football with their friends. And especially, you know, by the time they turn about three, you can just turn them loose. Uh, that was a joke, right? Um, <laughs> oh, rough crowd. And so, um, nah. And, and so what would happen is at the end of every quarter, they would have to come and do what? They'd have to come. We'd be up in the stands. They'd be down there. And we would have to make eye contact. Just so... They knew I had eyes on them, they had eyes on me, and everything's going to be okay. And so what, what Peter is doing in this, in quoting the psalmist, pointing out what gets God's eyes on us? What gets God's eyes on us? Now, I know theologically God's eyes are always on us, but what gets God's blessing? What gets God's goodness for us is what Peter is pointing out. And he's just talking about the power of words. The power of words get God's blessing on us, man. When you think about what it means to bless someone, um, when you bless someone, you, you, first of all, you just have words of encouragement. You have a desire for for a good outcome in their life. You have something that you want to say to them that's going to lift them up and not tear them down. And I get it. There are people, and this is why Peter has to deal with this: people who don't like you. There are people who would revile you or insult you. There are people who would say bad things about you. There are people who have done wrong things to you. And what, it, what the Bible teaches us is, is as far as it depends on me, I'm the adult in the room. As far as it depends on me, be at peace with other people. Now, sometimes because of them, you can't. But as far as what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to slander. I'm not going to lie. This is what Peter's saying for those people in our lives. And and if we think about family, many times we have these relationships in family. And I know that on Mother's Day, a lot of emotions come up because simply there's some people in the room that you wish you were a mom and it hasn't happened for you yet. So there's some bitterness and there's some pain, there's confusion, or maybe your mom has passed away and you don't have that relationship with her anymore. Or maybe it's just bad. Maybe, maybe your mom just wasn't healthy and she grew up in an emotionally dysfunctional family and she kind of passed that on and now y'all's relationship is broken. And so there are times though that we need to, as, as he says, seek peace and pursue it with other people that we may disagree with. As far as it depends on us, we take the initiative. Now the word for seek that Peter is using here is the word for just desire or crave. Like we should desire or crave peace. Hey, is there anybody in your life, you're like, I wish something bad would happen to them. Right? That, is that funny? <laughs> like, and not, not real bad, just a little bad. Just a little bad. Man, I wish they'd run out of gas. <laughs> you know? But then there are people, I don't know why that came out so funny. Um, 
Maybe y'all were thinking about me. Is that why you're laughing? <laughs> oh, that's funny. But we, we have some times, we have some thoughts like, we may not want a disaster to happen to them, but it'd be nice if they just didn't get that next raise or that next bonus. It'd be nice if their kid didn't win that next award. It'd be nice if, and sometimes what happens, and that's a reflection on our heart, not on them. So he says, seek peace, desire it. If you don't desire good for other people, man, that, that's, that's, a, that's a prayer prompt in your life. God, help me, help, me to, help me to want good for them. So he says, seek peace, and he says, pursue peace. Now, this one means to move quickly, to move quickly. How many people over the age of 50 in the house today? Just real quick, just real quick. I'm not going to hold it against you. Have you noticed it's a little harder to move quickly? We redefine what quickly looks like. Like the other day, uh, this was yesterday, we were cooking in the kitchen, or really Debbie was cooking. I was doing nothing. And so she was behind me, and she said, Stephen, there's a spider. And so, like, I need to know some more information. Because if it's a spider that's just being still, I'm fine. I'm going to be able to get around there and get to it. But if it's like on the move, i got to move quickly. And so it was on the move, and I moved quickly, pulled a hamstring. I mean, it was brutal. <laughs> but that's what you got to do, right? you got to move quickly. And so what Peter is saying is if you know there's some peace that needs to be, uh, some relationships that need to be reconciled, don't sit on your hands. You take the initiative. But Stephen, they don't want to reconcile. But Stephen, do you know what they did? But Stephen, I'm waiting for them to come to me. Peter's saying, no, no, no. You go to them. And words matter. And this is how, this is how God's blessing comes into our life. Does it mean that relationship's going to be reconciled? That's not necessarily what it's saying. But you can know that God has eyes on you and his ears can hear your prayer. What temperature are you setting in the rooms you walk into? Ask yourself that this week. What temperature are you setting in the rooms that you walk into? Then in verse 13, he says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So he's saying, hey, there's one way to live. If you want to do good, nobody's going to complain. Nobody's going to argue with that. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, what? You mean I can do good and still it won't go well for me? But when I thought if you followed Jesus, you were healthy, wealthy, and wise. I thought everything went your way. I thought you didn't suffer. Isn't that the promise of the gospel? No. Right? No. Let's look at suffering. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He says you have no fear. That's what, that's what a clean conscience will do. Let me just say a little bit about suffering in our culture and suffering in life. You know, we are one culture that really dismisses suffering and we don't value suffering the way a lot of other cultures have valued suffering, not just in history, but even today around the world. There are some places you can go where people are oppressed, where people are put down, where people are marginalized, and they seem to have the most joy because they understand that suffering can be an enriching experience. It can strengthen you and that suffering is actually independent of the joy of the heart. It is independent of the blessing of God. And see, we're taught that suffering is something to be avoided. And it is like nobody needs to wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I think I'll suffer today. Let me go wreck my car. Like that, that, that obviously, if that happens, you're going to be in therapy soon. And so what we know is though suffering is going to come our way and not to be Debbie Downer on Mother's Day, but I don't think I'm giving you anything you don't already know. Amen. 
You already know this, but what happens is we don't have a category or the strength or the tools to know how to deal with this suffering. So Peter is trying to give his, his followers and give these Christians tools to be able to deal with suffering. Now, now, our culture falls into what can be called the happiness trap. But just on a high level, the happiness trap just means that we think happiness is the ultimate destination. Anybody do that? Like, I just got to be happy. That's just the goal of life is to be happy. Now, here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in is when suffering happens, disappointment comes in, sickness happens, something, something that you aren't expecting comes your way. And if happiness is your purpose, then your purpose is gone because your happiness is gone. Listen, happiness is the Trojan horse to a trivial life. And this goal of happiness is the Trojan horse to, to, to a trivial life. And here's what I mean by that. If you look back in, in your history, maybe you remember the story of the Trojan horse. Now, Odysseus is leading his army uh, to try to overtake Troy, and he can't do it. And so they all leave in ships, and they take their navy, and they appear to leave, but they don't really leave. And they leave behind this big wooden Trojan horse because this was the symbol of the city of Troy. Now, Odysseus and some uh, special ops uh, soldiers, 40 to be sure, they stay inside this Trojan horse. And so the city of Troy doesn't know this. The Trojans don't know this. And they bring the big horse into the city, close the gates. Well, at night, they sneak out of the Trojan horse and they open the gates to the city. And the Navy has brought the soldiers back and they take over the city. This is why you have this phrase, Trojan horse. And this is what our pursuit of happiness can give us. Man, it looks good on the surface, doesn't it? Seems like this is how I should spend my time. This is how I should spend my money. This is how I should spend my life. Only to realize it is a house of cards. It has no ability to last. And it cannot deliver what we hoped it could deliver. It is a Trojan horse to a trivial life. It's this whole mindset that everybody gets a trophy. Any parents in here love that idea? Everybody gets a trophy. Because what happens is it doesn't teach our kids what it means to have resilience. And if you want to have successful children, resilience is the key. Angela Duckworth wrote a book called um, Grit. Uh, I think it's Grit, but it's about resilience. And it talks about the academics don't really determine the success of kids. It's not their IQ. I mean, it's not their looks. It's not their socioeconomic uh, status. It is their resilience that makes them successful and helps them to navigate the difficulties of life. Listen, when we raise kids trying to protect them from everything, man, we don't protect them from anything because it's coming for them later. Now, we got to be careful about how we, meet, how we uh, meter out the things that they need to do and the things that they need to experience, right? But listen, every, every kid didn't get a trophy, but every kid can get a crown in heaven. Come on. And so we need to be sure that we understand that suffering is a reality in life. Some of the, we, 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 we kind of look at, Christians are accused of using our, our cliche verses, our coffee, coffee cup verses to deal with suffering. So for instance, um, God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. That's why he's God and we are not. Now, it does say God won't tempt you more than you, you're able to withstand in the day of your temptation. But he never says, never says he will not give you more than you can handle. As a matter of fact, one of the things that suffering brings you is independence on God. One of the things that is good and redemptive about suffering is you realize, I realize, we realize that we can't do it all, that there is a God in heaven who is the creator of the universe, who is the only one worthy of worship. 
And sometimes this is what suffering can bring into our life. And I can only imagine the level of suffering in the room today. I believe if you could bottle up the suffering in this room today, it would sink a whole nation full of battleships. Because this is, this is how life goes. And for some people, it's been years ago. For some people, it was this week. And our Christian cliches have no power to deliver in that weight of suffering says this, God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, another, another thing that's really helpful. So when you know someone who's suffering, just tell them this, God works in mysterious ways. Like you're gonna get a mysterious fist in your face is what's gonna happen. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason, not helpful, right? Not helpful. You know, as we live in a culture that, that where we're overrun by anxiety, I mean, if you read the paper and you do, if you hear studies, we know that anxiety is an all-time high. I just want you to think about this for a second. It, roughly speaking, there's nine reasons for anxiety, roughly speaking. Um, there's a little bit of debate around the exact number, but let's call it nine. Two of those, two of those, one of is genetic. Can't fix that one. You are who you are. One is physiological, meaning your, your body chemistry. Another one is trauma. Okay, so out of, the, out of the nine, three of them you can't do anything about, but you can do something about the other six. And so when we struggle with anxiety, listen, I get it. My, I had, we, I've got family that struggles with mental health, um, with mental health issues, so I understand that there are some physiological reasons. But sometimes we try to just take the edge off when we get into suffering or when we find ourselves in an anxious um, state. And we need to learn what it means to have some resilience and to let God speak into that. We just medicate ourselves so much just to take the edge off. What about a little shopping therapy? That'll help. What about just an extra glass of wine? Man, what about just a muscle relaxer? And what about this and what about that? And Peter's trying to speak into this to remind us that suffering's a reality and that God is with us even in the suffering. There's a... Um, there's a, an author by the name of Viktor Frankl. He wrote God, Man's Search for Meaning. You should get that book if you haven't read it, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, and Frankl spent some years in a concentration camp. And he came out, he's a psychologist, and so he's in a lot of study. And he says that there's three ways to find purpose. Number one is in your work. Number two is in, in relationships. And number three, it comes through suffering comes through suffering. Now, again, nobody's going to wake up and pick suffering, but when you find yourselves in those moments, just remember God's doing a great work in your life, and God wants to be with you in the midst of your suffering. Let me ask you this question. How much of your day is spent planning for immediate happiness, not eternal joy? How much of your day is spent focused on immediate happiness, not eternal joy? And then there needs to be some planning for immediate happiness, but the majority of our lives should be spent thinking about, planning about, living for, spending for eternal joy. And he says this in verse 15, he says, honor in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in within you. The hope that's, and do that with gentleness and respect, Right? So what, what Peter's saying is, is that we need to share Jesus by standing out. Like our lives should actually stand out. Our lives should stand apart and not in some weird way. And then when we do, someone does ask us about the hope that's within us, we answer with gentleness and respect. Like that's, that's novel in today's culture. That's not the kind of words that people use. That's not the kind of venom that gets spewed. And by Christians is who I'm talking about. 
And so he's talking about, especially as you suffer, the way you handle suffering should really cause you to stand apart. You know, as a pastor, I've uh, unfortunately, I've had the un- misfortune um, or honor, depending on how you look at it, of officiating uh, a number of funerals from newborns to centenarians. Man, I've, I've done the gamut of funerals. And I can tell you that there's a difference in how people who follow Jesus handle difficulty and handle death. There's a different hope that they have. I mean, they don't, they don't ignore it and pretend everything's going to be okay. It's not that at all, but it's just this resilient walk into the future with their eyes on eternity, even in the midst of the pain and the struggle and the sadness. And listen, when people see that, they know, they know that they're missing out on something and they want to ask for the hope that's within you. When's the last time someone said, you know, I see hope in you. Where does that come from? Like, when's the last time that happened to you? You know, I I don't know that people specifically ask that very specific question, but here's what they will do. They'll want to be around you. They'll they'll notice something different about you. They'll notice how you handle your kids or how you handle dating or how you handle your job. They'll they'll notice what other people say about you, and they'll want to be around you. Who wants to be around you these days? Like, Like in your life, who is asking, hey, could I ask you a question? Hey, could we be around you? Who, who, when they see you coming down the street, just kind of stands out in the yard hoping you'll speak? Right? Who is asking to be around you? This is, this is what Peter is talking about. And be ready and prepared to share the hope that is in, within you and do that with gentleness and respect. And then as we get into verse 18, it gets a little bit, uh, it gets a little bit uh, complicated. He ties a, lot, a couple of things together in ways that I want to just do my best to simplify them because it's really, really important for where we want to land the message today. So in verse 18, I'm just going to start reading and unpack a little bit. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now this is um, something that should give us comfort because if we had a God who'd never suffered, you'd kind of be like, uh, I'm not so sure. But we have a God who suffered, amen? Like we have a God who showed up on the scene to identify and be one of us. We have a God who took nails into his hands and was hung on a cross and was brutally murdered and experienced the pain and the agony and the suffering so that we know he's got ours, come on. Like we know that our God understands suffering. It'd be hard to believe in a God who tells us about suffering and tells us to grin and bear it when he himself never suffered, but Jesus did and he did it undeservedly. So when we get insulted or when we have to take the high road, Jesus took the highest road. He's the one who gives our example. So he talks about Jesus suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Man, he is making a way home. Hello? God is giving us a way to get home. Bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Let me, let me just talk about that briefly. Now, <clears throat> there, there's a couple of different uh, interpretations of what it meant for Jesus to go and speak to the spirits in prison. Now, almost all of those involve Jesus dying on Friday, going into hell to preach to spirits that are imprisoned in hell. And so what we wanted to title this message was how to go through hell, but it was Mother's Day and that felt a little rugged. (laughs) 
But suffice it to say, what this means is <clears throat> that no matter like who, some people think that these were other demons. Some people think that they were people that died before Noah. And we're going to talk about Noah in a second. Um, and so, but, but suffice it to say, no matter which specific uh, audience you think Jesus was preaching to, here's the point. It was a victory speech. <laughs> he was proclaiming victory over death to every single creature in the universe. This is the point of this passage. Then he goes on to say, um, now that he's gone to hell, he's proclaimed the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, how many people remember the story of Noah? You got it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of hit, hit the high points again. Probably need to go into a little deeper, uh, but I'll hit the high points of the story of Noah. But it waited since the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water. So baptism, so now he's, he's painting the picture of what Noah went through in the ark to baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt in, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So now you, here's what we have, and just kind of boil it down. Jesus goes, he preaches victory. He preaches victory to people that were tied to some, something that happened before Noah. Now, now here's how the story of Noah uh, gets really cool and plays into this. Adam and Eve were created. And you, you remember Adam and Eve sinned. And then once they sinned, things just went south. Like it just deteriorated more evil and more evil and more evil. There was never any back. There was never any uh, redemption that came out of that. So eventually God sees Noah and his eight family members. And he's like, I need to start over. So God is going to send a flood. Now, now think about this. He goes to Noah and he says, I want you to build an ark. Up until this point, most scholars and scientists believe it hadn't rained yet. So he's like, build a boat. Noah's like, a what? So build this boat. He gives them the dimensions. It's the size and shape of a battleship. Holds about 500 rail cars. Takes them 120 years to build this thing. So Noah builds the ark. And then they bring the animals into the ark. And then the rains come. And the rains come. And the rains begin to destroy the earth except for Noah and his family. And this for us is intended to be an image of baptism. So baptism and what we see Jesus command us to be baptized, just like we baptized a couple of people today in our two services. And baptism is when you go under the water. And listen, when you go under the water, it's just this symbol of, our, of, our, of us losing our lives and to live our life to Christ. It says we're buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new way of life. It's this image you also have this image of being clean. It's not just cleaning the dirt off of our skin, but cleaning the stain off of our soul because we've decided to follow Jesus. And so this is, this is the image that we have of baptism. Jesus was baptized. The early church baptized. That's why we baptized. It may be a little weird for you if you haven't come to church or maybe you came from a little bit of a different tradition. Now, one of the things about baptism is, you know, in some traditions, like your parents would have you baptized. Um, and that's a great move for them. But what we see in the Bible is that people who follow Jesus are baptized. And so for some of you, that's probably your next step is to be baptized is this step to follow Jesus. Now, now you may be like, ah, you know what? I don't know. Like, that seems fine. I'm good. I, I, I've got my Bible. I read. I pray. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this over here. I don't really need baptism. Now, now, now he, just a little word of encouragement and challenge. And I hope it doesn't sound too harsh. But if we're honoring Christ as Lord, he's first. He's told us to get baptized. And we want to hold out on baptism. I wonder if Christ is really Lord in your life. 
I wonder if he's really first. I think you would have to question, if there's anything you wouldn't do that he's asked you to do, you'd have to question your commitment to following Christ. So he says, baptism, baptism is just this pledge of our hearts to follow Jesus, and he has gone into heaven, right? He has gone into heaven. And this is where the, 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 the passage kind of lands. It says, he has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So here's the, yeah, come on. This is about to get good. <clears throat> so here's the image we have. Jesus has gone and proclaimed freedom, right? He's proclaimed victory over everything. He's been given everything. And as we piece together what that throne is, what we know in the throne room, it is the culmination, the epicenter of everything. It's where decisions get made. It's where, it's where, um, it's where we see peace. It's perfect peace is there. It is perfect love is there. We know that, um, and there is no There's no jealousy or anger or rage. Like everything happens. The heartbeat of the universe is right there in the throne room. It is the epicenter of everything. And it's actually what our hearts long for. It's where our hearts long to be. It's everything that we want, even though we can't articulate it at times. And when we know things are good, that's because God has put it in there. And we know things are not good. That's because it doesn't belong in the throne room of God. And so it says this, that Jesus is gone is in the throne room of God, that Jesus is there. Now, now, and it says he's sitting on his throne, right? He's sitting on his throne. And so most of the images you have is Jesus sitting on his throne. And from there, he's surveying the world. It says his eyes run to and fro, right? He's looking all over the the, the world for those who are righteous. This is happens in the throne room of God. It's where our hopes and our dreams and everything comes together. It says this about Jesus. He is the God of angel armies, not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, even though he's that, but he's there. He, he's ready and willing to, to wage war, to bring us home. This is what he's doing in heaven. Man, he's got a sword and a sickle. Um, man, he has the keys of hell and the keys of death. He is victorious over everything. So I just want that image in your mind. And I want to, I want to tell a story about a guy in the Bible who, who God, Jesus saw from his throne. Jesus saw from his throne. And he epitomizes everything that we've just talked about. Everything. Now, this guy's name in the Bible, his name was Stephen. No relation. Now, Stephen, the first time we see him in the, in the Bible is in the book of Acts. It's in the, it's in the book of the early church. And as we look at his story, the, the disciples are, are running out of time to serve the church. And they look for some men who will serve people, like the things that they didn't really have time to do, things that seemed like it may be beneath them. And one of the guys they pick is Stephen because he just had no thought for himself. A humble mind, a tender heart. This was Stephen. And so Stephen began to serve, and then he was telling people about the gospel. People would ask about the hope that was in them, and he was telling them. And it got him in trouble, because remember, they're in Rome, they're in the Roman Empire, and things are not good. And sometimes, not just the Roman Empire wanted to destroy them, but the religious establishment wanted to destroy him. So they, they arrest Stephen, and they put him on trial, and Stephen begins to teach them the gospel. He begins to tell them everything that they needed to know, starting in the Old Testament, all the way through to the death, burial, and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus into the throne room. Like this is a story that he tells. And it says that they were undone. They were so angry at him that they began to stone him. And it says this, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. Wow, saw the glory of God. 
And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is standing. That's, that's crucial. And it says, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man is standing at the right hand of God. And then that really put him over the edge. And so they just began to stone him and cry and rend their garments. And he says this as he was dying. He says, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Why could you do that? They're stoning him. It's like, forgive them, Lord. Man, they don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this sin against them. And then he dies. Before he died, Jesus, again, Everywhere in the Bible except here, what's Jesus doing? He's sitting on his throne. In this story of Stephen, Jesus stands in honor of Stephen. And it's as if Jesus is applauding him because he lived the life of blessing that he wanted. Now, to be sure, the only reason Stephen could do that is because he saw Jesus He knew Jesus. Jesus gave him the power to do that. He gave him the desire and the craving. But he stood and he looked. And he saw Jesus. And Jesus stood and said, good job. And you may feel like you're unseen today. You may feel like you're going through something, that you're struggling, and God doesn't care. And if God is so good, how does this happen? Man, it may be something that happened a long time ago. I just want you to know that what Peter is teaching us today is that he hasn't left you and he, is gonna, he died so he could bring you home. He died so he could bring you home. And listen, this is where we wanna shift our service for just a few minutes. Let's just shift from the practical to the supernatural. Now, the way that we do that is, is through prayer. So, so what's gonna happen is, is we're gonna, I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna have a moment where I pray and then our, our prayer team's gonna come down front And we're going to stand and just sing one more worship song on the way out today just to honor the Lord. And we would love to pray for you today. I mean, if you really want to invite God into what's going on, if you want to invite God into your heartache, if you want to invite God to bless you, if you want to invite God into into some need that you have, some question that you have, some problem that you have, it's like this is the time. And, and, And if we don't take time together, to invite God in, then we're not a house of prayer that Jesus told us that we should be. And so we would love to be able to pray for you. We pray for dozens of people in the first service. And if you're new to this, this is how it goes. I just want to be really, really clear. Let me take something supernatural and make it practical. When you come down here, it's going to be very simple. Hey, my name is Stephen, and this is what I want you to pray for. And then someone's going to pray for you. It's not going to be weird, right? They're not going to hit you in the head and you fall over. Like, nothing's going to happen. We're just going to invite God to come into your life. And we're going to invite God to answer something. We're going to invite God to show up for something that, that maybe he's never showed up for before. Let's bow our heads. Let me pray for us.